0: It's lovely to have you here and be with you here this morning, and uh, we're finishing off our series called Climate Change Today. Uh, Five weeks we've been looking at the requirement, I guess, that Scripture gives us to um, set the boundaries or set the precedent of what we need to do. If we want to change the spiritual climate change of our nation, then we need to be praying. And we've just finished this week—a week-long prayer, a week-long time of prayer for our community and our nation. This last week, I encouraged you to spend uh, at least—I would say—a week as a, uh, a week, uh, an hour as a family or an individual—and I pray that your small groups took on the the responsibility of spending an entire hour uh, in your small groups. Or more. To pray for our community, to pray for our nation, to recognize that there are some very blatant and direct and personal sometimes attacks on Christianity across our nation. And that shouldn't catch us by surprise. That shouldn't be something that we go, we, we've heard for the first time. It's, it's real, it's going to increase as time goes on. And we need to be prepared for that. And the way that we can be prepared for that is to trust God in himself. We need to trust him in in everything that we do. While the physical terminology of climate change and the implications of what scientists and others are saying are the effects of climate change have been in our news for a long, long time. They're consistently... Uh, in the news number one spot apart from probably at the moment COVID seems to have overcome all of that again at the moment but climate change has been this ongoing news worthy item that is blamed for everything that is happening in our world it seems from famines to flooding to snow to everything else. The reality is that if we want to change the physical, we need to recognise that it is God who is the one who created everything in the first place. We need to understand that. He is far above all of our understanding. He is far more able. He is able to do anything he chooses. In fact, the whole of this planet was brought into existence by his word, He speaks things happen. And God is the one who determines its boundaries of what happens on our planet. He's the one who is in ultimate control. Can we affect those things? I'm sure we can, but it is still God who is in control who can override anything if he should see fit to do so. And I'm reminded of that because he actually tells Job, when Job has gone through all his stuff and his friends have been so helpful in telling him what's wrong, he has this conversation, or God has this conversation with Job in Job chapter 38. He says, this is God speaking to Job specifically, and he says, "'Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? "'Tell me if you know so much. "'Who determined its dimensions?' And stretched out the surveying line. What supports its foundations? And who laid its cornerstone? As the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy, who kept the sea inside its boundaries? As it burst forth from the womb. And as I clothed it with clouds and wrapped it in thick darkness, for I locked it behind barred gates limiting its shores, And I said, this far and no further will you come. Here, your proud waves must stop. And right there is the key to the physical climate change that's been talked about for so long. Those boundaries that we're concerned of rising sea levels and all of the other melting solar caps and 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 the intense heat in places and the intense cold in other places, we've attributed to things that we think we have control over and we don't. Those boundaries are set up by God and I've said this nearly every time I've been up here that if we have a problem here on earth that has its origins in heaven, trying to fix it here on earth is going to be a waste of time because he is still the one that's in control. The only way we are going to sort out the things, the problems here on earth is to deal with the creator himself, is to come before him. And as a nation, we need to turn our eyes back to him. In the past, over many years, we have gradually pushed him out of all of our society. Denying his power, denying his his influence in our in our governments, but it 's not just our governments businesses everything schools he 's been pushed out from us. is he pushed out no he 's not but he 's been we have denied him and so god 's going to there are consequences god 's going to reveal himself in some ways there are consequences for denying God in that and that 's what this series is really all about it 's It's not specifically about the climate change as we hear. It's how do we change the spiritual climate of our nation so that everything changes. It means that we need to pray. It begins with prayer. We've spoken of our need as a Christian to take this responsibility. Last night we talked about that. The responsibility is ours. It's not our our prime ministers. It's not our premiers. It's not our local mayor or, or anything attributed to those things. It's not their responsibility. Unless, of course, they have given their hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ. But from a secular point of view, it's not their responsibility to pray. It's ours. If my people will humble themselves and pray, these things can change. Humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from my wickedness. 2 Chronicles 7.14. We're going to get to it on screen. You can put it up now if you like. But it's there. If my people will humble themselves. It doesn't say if, if the world turns around, if the nation turns around. It's us that it's talking to. So it's our responsibility It's no one else's problem in the sense of needing to pray because they won't. The reality is they're not going to do that. So as we conclude the series today, I want to leave us with or I want to show us a picture of two churches, two different churches, and we're going to talk about what does a praying church look like? How do we pray or what? does a praying church look like Jesus condemned the Pharisees and religious leader for using the temple as a place of unholy worthy in in Matthew 21 he says he said to them the scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer but you have turned it into a den of thieves This place, this building that we meet in every week has been dedicated to be used for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a common building. It's been set apart for his glory and his honour. And I want to make sure that this place too is a house of prayer. Not just superficially, not just putting God into a box, but how do we pray as a church? How can we encourage people into prayer? Because realistically still, the the least attended meetings of the entire church are prayer meetings. Always have been. It seems like there's no way to change that, but I know there is. We can't let that be the case. This place needs to be used for holy purposes and honouring God in everything that we do in that. And today I want to give you this picture of these churches, where one of the churches was embedded in a culture not dissimilar to our culture, and another where a young pastor has given advice on the importance of prayer or making prayer central to the church, to the local church. So to give you a picture of these two churches, the first one is in Acts chapter 11, it's the church of Antioch. I love, uh, it's, it's an amazing church. I think it would be wonderful if we could take a lot of lessons from Antioch. Let's what read, it says, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who when they had come to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists preaching the Lord Jesus Christ and the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch and when he came and had seen the grace of God he was glad and encouraged them all with that, the purpose of heart that they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. (coughs) Excuse me. I probably need to give you a little context of this church because as we read through that, it's, qu- it's easy to miss the significance of this church in Antioch. During the time of the New Testament, Antioch was a centre of commerce. It was a, a relatively big city. It's, it was an important political town or power in the Roman Empire. And... <coughs> excuse me. Though Antioch is hundreds of miles from Jerusalem, it's a long way from Jerusalem. So we've just read that they sent Paul, and Barnabas ended up going there as well. It was a long trip to go from Jerusalem. There is a significant Jewish population of about half a million, 500,000 people in Antioch. And they'd been there for a long time, becoming a powerful population within the city And in the second half of the century, of the first century, Herod the Great paved the streets with marble. It was a very influential place and had a lot of money attributed to it. It stood near the mouth of the Orontes River and it was about 24 kilometers from the Mediterranean Sea. It was famous for its gambling, extravagant way of living, and one writer, describes it like this, Antioch was famous for its chariot racing and a kind of deliberate pursuit of pleasure which went on literally day and night. To put it in modern terms, we might describe her as a city of sport-run mad, gambling, betting, and nightclubs. Sound familiar? And that was a scene into which the followers of Jesus, who had been scattered from the time of Stephen. When Stephen's death happened, the believers were scattered out across the, the known world. That was the scene in which they went. It was at Antioch that the followers of Jesus were first called Christians. It was not a pleasant term. It wasn't meant to be this encouragement oh, how, oh, you? you are one of the Christians. No, it was you are one of those Christ followers. You're a Christian. It was a derogatory term. Because of the whole nature of society, it was they were frowned upon for being a Christian. Again, sound familiar? So this is, a, this is a relatively new church. It's not that old at this point in time. Built in a, in a culture of materialism and consumerism and the church still continues to grow. And then it's not too long after we, we actually read about a leadership prayer meeting that happens in the church of Antioch. And that it took place and it paved way for a major shift in the church and the understanding of the activities of the church led by Barnabas. Remember, Barnabas was there, he called Paul in, and the leadership <coughs> called a, a meeting. It was a picture of a multi language, multicultural, multi-gifted leadership team meeting. And we read of that meeting in Acts chapter 13. It says, Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Nigea, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. There's the leadership of this church. And as they ministered to the Lord and they fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. We've already read that they were there for about a year. So this is not a long or an old church. But do you see what happened at this, at this time in a relatively new church? These leaders gave themselves... Up to commit to worship and prayer, to fasting and prayer as well. They received a message in that time from the Holy Spirit. It was a significant instruction, if you really think about that, for a brand new church with influential leaders like Barnabas and Saul who are part of that, for two of them to be set aside for a special mission. And so they prayed. It says, after further prayer and fasting, they sent them on their way. There are a few questions that could be raised that we're unable to answer in regards to how that all took place or, or what they heard and all of those sorts of things, but that's the facts really are still there. There are some things that are very clear. There is a group of people who were committed to fasting and prayer. They gave serious time to that. They heard from God. They followed the instruction given to them by God and they sent out. Paul and and Barnabas out, or Saul and Barnabas, it was Paul by then, and Antioch then became the launching pad for a lot of mission and church planning experiences from that point on. It was central to everything that took place in that area itself, and seeing the gospel message preached across the known world at that time. It was a good church, fresh, new, prayerful. The second incident of church prayer I wanted to look at is written in a letter to a young pastor named Timothy. He was the pastor of a church in Ephesus. And Timothy was facing some people who had somehow were bent on on majoring on things that weren't that important. They'd been distracted from the message that they knew and and had gone down a a rabbit warren for some reason. And Paul was calling Timothy To to deal with that, and whatever these unnecessary conflicts and arguments, we read about them, but we don't know exactly what they are specifically. From what we know, it appears they had been caught up in some new trend or new discovery in religious thought, and Paul had viewed this and seen this as being very divisive and speculative. And so he talks to Timothy, writes to Timothy, and he says this in Timothy, 1 Timothy 1. He says, When I left for Macedonia, I urged you to stay there in Ephesus and stop those whose teaching is contrary to the truth. Don't let them waste their time in endless discussions of myth or spiritual pedigrees. These things only lead to meaningless speculations, which don't help people live a life of faith in God. The, five, the purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience and genuine faith. <clears throat> but some people have missed the whole point. They have turned away from these things and spend their time in meaningless discussions. They want to be known as teachers of the law of Moses, but they don't know what they're talking about, even though they speak so confidently. Now we might not know the details of what was going on there but we get the general drift of the conversation or the the situation of what's happening and Paul outlines for Timothy the things he needs to implement and right there in the middle of, of what Paul's letter is to Timothy it says, Paul writes this, he says I urge you first of all to pray for all people. First thing, ask God to help them intercede on their behalf probably because they wouldn't do it for themselves or they were unable to do it and give thanks for them pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity <clears throat> in every place of worship i want men to pray with holy hands lifted up from god up to god free from anger and controversy. What Paul is urging to Timothy is to ensure that the prayer is the central part of everything that takes place in this church at Ephesus. What Paul's desire and, uh, is that their focus would be in not inward thinking, but it would have an outward focus to that as well. Prayer is the antidote for divisiveness. Paul even suggests that they pray for their Roman emperor, who was not a Christ follower himself, who had nothing to do with Christianity. In fact, he was putting things into place that were quite contrary to to the Christian faith at that time. Serious prayer is a great solution for when there is anger and where there is infighting within the church and prayer is central even here so the lessons, there's two churches that we have a picture of in scripture there are others but these are the two I want to look at a praying church makes prayer central to everything that's your first point if you're keeping notes and at Antioch they had devoted themselves to worship and prayer and as a result they were able to recognise what God's will is for them to send Saul or Paul and and Barnabas off into ministry. While at the church at Ephesus, it seems that they'd lost their focus a little bit because prayer was not central to the ministry. In fact, that was what Paul was encouraging Timothy to do. You need to first of all pray for all people. That's the first thing. How we regard prayer in our church says much about our commitment to Christ. Talking about prayer and praying are two totally different things. In fact, that's the kind of thing that James was actually referring to when he says in James 1, he says, don't just listen to the God's word, you must do what it says, otherwise you're only fooling yourselves. Getting down to pray when we're on our own is 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 being, and being part of regular prayer meetings has is, is got to be central to what we do. Making prayer a priority of our, at our small groups rather than being tagged on the end, oh quick, we've run out of time, let's pray and get home. It can't be like that or it shouldn't be like that. Having prayer as central part of why we exist is what a praying church should centre itself on. Putting legs on our words and following through on the way on what we say. Antioch, a relatively new church, was able to minister to a whole heap of people and was even prepared to send out their, their key leaders and, dis, and, and send them out into ministry. And the church grew. Secondly, a praying church sees prayer as a two way package. Prayer is, is really not. Just talking to God. It really involves listening as well. I don't know how many times in scripture, I should have looked it up, I didn't. How many times in Jesus' parables, the the churches in Revelation, Jesus, Jesus finishes off his talks with, If you have ears, listen. Or something similar. He says it over and over and over again. Because prayer isn't just telling God what we want. It never works when all the, the conversation is, is on one side, us telling God what he needs to do, or ask telling God what we've decided to do and asking him to bless that. Imagine what God might be thinking. I don't know if you can do this, but you'll get the picture. When we pray, we get down on our knees, we tell him what Is wrong, we tell it we can we might even confess, we ask him for help, and then we get up and we do what we want anyway. If that was your children, you would do something about that, I'm pretty sure. You come and ask me for help, and yet you do what you want anyway. What's the point of doing that? God desires an intimate, healthy relationship with us and he wants us to have the same with him. And as the church at Antioch prayed, they heard the Holy Spirit speak to them, asking for them or telling them to send Barnabas and Saul away for ministry. It would have been so costly in a physical sense for that church to do that. A growing church, a healthy church, a church that's centered on prayer. And, and they say, you know what? What it did is cause the church to focus on and trust God himself, not our own means of dealing with stuff. They would have had a ton of questions. Who was going to lead them? When would they be back? Who's going to check up on, on their spiritual health? What's going to keep them on? Who's going to keep them online? Yet they did it anyway because the Lord God did that. In contrast, the church at Ephesus was suffering from some leaders who whose message wasn't quite on track. They were off message. And the church was divided. Why? Because they weren't listening to God. They were listening to to other voices and that were around them. And Nehemiah was in a similar position when he was building the wall. I don't know if you remember the story, but he, he was called to rebuild, or God sent him to, build, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. He knew God had told him that. He knew his mission But there were some enemies that were coming around. Every time they got started and things looked like they were going to be happening, the enemy came into camp and started to distract them. One one incident, Senbalat and Geshem sent a message asking me, this is Nehemiah speaking, asking me to meet them at one of the villages on the plain of Ono. And I realised that they were plotting to harm me. So I replied by sending them this message, I am engaged in a great work so I cannot come. Why should I stop working to come and meet with you. Four times they sent this message. Each time I gave them the same reply. Stop doing the work that God has called you to do, that wasn't their words, it's mine, and do this other thing. Put it on hold, whether it's busyness in our life, whether it's it's a distracted message from somewhere else, what is the work that God has called us to do? That's how often it happens in our life. We, we've got to maintain, we need to maintain this two-way communication with God if we want to know what his will is. If we don't know his will for, the, for our lives or for our church or for our nation, how in the world are we going to make any proper decisions? A praying church sees prayer as a place where vision is born. Number three, a place where vision is born. Every part of the body has a function, body physically and the body of Christ. It ha- every part has a function. God has a plan and a purpose for us here in this part of the body. It's not about denominations, but it encompasses that because as each denomination has been formed around the world and, and certainly in our community the denominations have tended to form around what people see as a priority in, in worship. So for us, it's, it's this holiness of lifestyle. We, we believe we, we should be set apart to do what God wants. Others, it's, it's baptism and it's the Holy Spirit and, and being led by that. They're all things that we, we tend to, to focus on. Now, all of them probably have good parts to that. All of them. And and it would be wrong for us as a church to say, well, they're all wrong and let's not do things with them because they're going to do things different to us and we can't accept that. The body works together. It has to. And the overall mandate of the church is given to us in Matthew 28 where it says, go and make disciples of all nations baptising them in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit and teach these new disciples, these ones that have now been baptised to obey all the commandments. That tells me that when we're baptised, we probably won't know all the things that we're supposed to know. Baptism isn't coming as a result of I've got my life together. Baptism is a process that leads us into the presence of God that we should be teaching then, The commands that I've given you, says Jesus, and be sure of this, I'm going to be with you always, even to the end of the age. That again tells me this wasn't just a commandment to the people of that time. This is Jesus saying, I'm going to be with the church now, right through to the end. And this is what I'm calling the church to do. That's our general mission. But not every church has the same function we will reach people through different means. And God has put the church together as he sees fit. So you and I here today, God has brought us together because we have specific jobs to do, roles to play, ministries that we can be part of, ideas, the, the things that God has gifted you and I in and abilities. He has shaped us for ministry. And we have a role to play. We have a responsibility. Knowing what God is calling us to do specifically only comes when we start to pray. It will only come when we start to pray and we bring our requests to him. Vision just doesn't appear. It's it's not just a big long discussion over months and then we, we make this snap decision saying, well, this is going to be the vision for the church. It doesn't happen like that. It comes through prayer and fasting and worship. We can't expect to tell God what to do or what our vision is and asking him to bless it if that his role or his job for us as a church is completely different to what we've decided. A praying church is able to fulfill and understand the mission that God has for it. And the church at Antioch is a great example of what happens when a church begins to spend time praying and listening to God. As hard and as costly as it would have been to send out influential leaders into the mission field, not knowing if or when they were coming back, not knowing who was going to take on the responsibility of leadership within the church, the willingness to do that speaks volumes of the trust they had in God. Even though they were a young church, the church globally was born and blessed. The church at Antioch didn't suffer because of that. And many came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as a result. They came under persecution, don't hear me wrong. Things were tough. But God blessed them. And the Ephesian church, on the other hand, didn't see those same kinds of blessings at all. In fact, I don't know if you remember when we were going through the churches, the seven churches mentioned in Revelation, the Ephesian church was the one that God was critical of. They'd lost their first love. It was that church that they had lost their first love because they had focused on things that really weren't the important thing. Timothy had to then or was guided to spend time with them and and steer them away from that stuff that really didn't matter, and make prayer central. Pray for all people. Pray for those who don't agree with you. Pray for those who are preaching or teaching things that are not absolutely correct. Just pray for them. It wasn't kick them out of the church. It wasn't make a big ruckus about it. It was pray. Pray for them. And we need to be praying the praying church keeps their eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ to be, so that we can be guided, our vision and our purpose can be guided with him. Number four, last one. A praying church gives prayer an outward focus. And when a church prayer is outwardly focused, God's blessings are magnified exponentially, I would say. If we were to do a survey of all Australian churches, maybe even broader that, but I, I certainly know this to be true in Australia... Australian churches I think what we would find is that the majority of prayer was about personal needs being met in their in our immediate circle I think we would find that and while there's nothing wrong with bringing our requests we're, we're actually told to do that in Philippians we read it just a few weeks ago don't worry about anything instead pray about everything tell god what you need and thank him for all that he's done we are to do those sort of things. So they're not wrong in themselves, those, those, those types of prayers. But if all our prayer is inwardly focused, something is missing from the prayer equation. And Paul's instruction to Timothy in the church at Ephesus was that prayer was to be this comprehensive thing and based on the love for all people. Pray for them, Timothy. Timothy. First of all, I love that little phrase, first of all, pray. Before you get into doing other stuff, first of all, pray. Pray for them. Pray for those that can't. Pray for them because they're in disagreement or you're in disagreement. Just pray for them. And our desire ought to be that others would come to know the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That should be our desire. That's what Matthew 28 is all about, making disciples. I mentioned in week three that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, meaning that God has made it easy for everyone, no matter what background, what things have happened in their life, he's made it easy for all of us to come to know him. It's not a hard path, it's a hard choice, but the path is easy. And we all have friends who will not consider coming to the cross as an option. I have a bunch of friends. I know you have a bunch of friends who would not even consider that. It wouldn't be on their radar that they would want to come to the foot of the cross. So let's pray for them. Let's pray outwardly for them. Pray outwardly for those who cannot and that will not pray for themselves. Pray that God's hand of grace might be upon them and that they might know that God's hand of blessing upon them, it, what it is looking like. I'm reminded of Joseph. Potiphar was blessed because of Potiphar, because of Joseph's presence, and he knew that. We need to re, the, the, we need to be like that. We need to be light in this world, and and this community of people, this. T- Town of and, and and the beyond areas can be blessed because of God's people praying together and keeping this outward focus. This series has been about understanding that prayer is the essential ingredient to our Christian living. We cannot exist without it. The spiritual climate is not going to change without us as God's people praying. It's not. We can gripe, talk, whinge, whine, anything about all that's going on in our world, but unless we put prayer as a priority into our life, as in the life of the church, in the life of it individually, in fact, in fact, individually we are the church. As we come together, the church is gathered. We, we're going to find that a problem. The spiritual chi- uh, climate is not going to change. Without, the, without prayer, the kingdom of God will not come. Jesus told his disciples, or taught his disciples how to pray. What was the line in, in Jesus' prayer? He taught them say, pray, your kingdom come. He's called us to pray for that. And your will be done, that God's kingdom would come and his will would be done. It's, it's a call for us to pray those things. Will it happen if we don't pray? Maybe, but we've been told we should pray for that. It's not whether it can be done another way or anything. It's not up to us to decide that. Our responsibility is to pray that God's kingdom will come and his will would be done. And today, I believe prayer opens up the opportunity, the prison doors. It opens up the preaching doors. It binds the enemy. It opens up heaven. It releases things to happen here on earth that are in bondage. Prayer is the plough that breaks up the fallow ground. It's so that the seed, the gospel seed, can start to be sown. Prayer is the thing that we need to be doing in preparation and during the, the growing period, during the harvest time. We need to be praying. Jesus even says, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. Pray, he says. Pray to the Lord. We need to pray because today it's horrific to even think about this but God is going to witness the death of every lost man and woman that happens on this day he's going to witness that he'll observe every brutal act of child molestation incest murder rape today his heart will be broken again And tormented by every vile act that man is able to think up or do. Yet he doesn't turn away from us. He can't look upon the sin but he does not turn away from us. He purposely sees that and he weeps. Because of his love for us. So I pray today that we as the bride of Christ, we might enter into his brokenness with him and cry and weep over the the situation our world is in, our community is in, our nation is in. That it would break our heart as it breaks the heart of God, I'm sure. Because the Spirit of God is upon us We have the Holy Spirit's power. It's our responsibility to bring these people and these situations to him. So I want to encourage you to to join with us in a practical way. Join with one of the prayer meetings that we have. Make it a priority. there's, There's so many ways we can do that. Saturday morning at seven it might be too early for some of you, but it's a good time to meet as we start out the day. I would love to have so many here. We actually have to put out more chairs and and break into groups. What a wonderful thing that would be if that was happening every week. for our Friday afternoon at four thirty, I think it is down at Kinker Beach uh, if, you, if you're a woman it's a women's prayer meeting, go down, talk to Terry. Make an appointment to be there and pray. Encourage one another in that. Sunday morning, before church, we meet at nine o'clock in my office. It, if, it would mean some of you would have to be half an hour earlier for, for church on a Sunday morning, but realistically, that's not a big deal if we're keen and interested in praying for what's going on in our community. Let's pray. We need to make that a priority in us, and I want to encourage you to do that. I would love to see our our, our prayer meetings expand exponentially over over the coming months. Not just something we add on to what we're doing, but something that we... It's central to everything. Everything branches out from prayer. It doesn't happen as one of the ministries. It's central. So I encourage you, as hard as it's going to be, it is going to be difficult for some. Children, work, distractions of other kinds, they're going to still be there. But I've said this many times too, that we always find the time to do what we really want to do. doesn't matter how busy we are. We always find the time to do what we want to do. And I would love us to want to pray. I would love us to want to gather together. We won't always agree. The way it happens, we won't always understand. But I know that God is worthy of praise. I know that he's worthy of honour. I know that he is worthy of being with and communicating with and listening to so that we might be able to do the work that he has for us. So I'm calling us, let's be a house of prayer. Let's be a praying church not putting God in some sort of box of what that even looks like so much, but allowing the Holy Spirit to guide us, direct us, and be aware of and sensitive to his leading as we trust him. Let me pray now. Father, I do thank you for what you are doing in the lives of your people across our nation. I know, Lord, that you are stirring up your your spirit is stirring up the desire to stand up and and teach and preach and and live and be the people that we have called to be. I know you're doing that. You're doing that in our church as well, Father. Some of those things are are difficult. Some of those things are contrary to what we've done before. Some of those things are not like they've always been, and we're finding it hard, Lord. But I do pray that we might be of one mind when it comes to seeking you and seeking your will so lord bless each of our families bless the young people bless those who i know are going to find it difficult to do that but father we want to pray for them regardless help us to be faithful to the calling that you've given us as a church to make disciples in whatever context that looks like for us father help us to know your 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 plan for us as a church to give us clarity of what our purpose needs to be. As the board is elected tomorrow night, as as we meet, Father, for things to discuss in regards to the future of, of our church, Father, we want you to be central to that. We want to listen to your will, not tell you what our will is. And even myself, Father, may your will be done in my life. Whatever that looks like for the next Number of years, whatever it is, Father, while I've got time on this planet, may your will be done. And may your kingdom come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.